Blog Talk Radio. Quiet, please. Welcome to Rex Sykes Movie Beat, conversations with filmmakers where we discuss everything film and television. Here on Movie Beat, you'll learn what to do and what not to do when it comes to making movies and TV. We will talk to everyone behind the scenes and in front of the camera, and I will provide you with guests and the information you're going to want to have, whether you're a filmmaker or a fan. So now let's move behind the scenes at Movie Beat. First, thanks everyone for tuning in and for listening live or archived. Thank you for spreading the word about Movie Beat by way of Facebook, MySpace, your favorite social uh, media networking means uh, through Twitter. Uh, the official website is R-E-X-S-I-K-E-S. That's my name. It's RexSykes.com. And you can subscribe to the official website right there at the welcome page by clicking on the RSS feed. And so go ahead and do that if you haven't already. If you're listening live on Blog Talk, go ahead and make us a friend, make us a fan, uh, rate and review the shows, leave comments. We appreciate that. It helps us spread the word far and wide to others who may not have heard the show. By the way, the chat room is open. My guest today is Matthew Tompkins. He's an actor, he's a writer, he's a producer, he's a director. He's going to talk about two uh, movies that he's made that is in global release right now. Uh, he's, and I'll get more, I'll get more uh, to his uh, biography in his introduction in just a few moments. We'll come back to that. Uh, Movie Beat is really designed to be a resource for you. That's why I connect you up with professionals who are making it happen. And there are over 150 hours of fabulous interviews with uh, movie professionals, everyone behind the scenes and in front of the camera, as I said. And uh, they're all archived right there at RexSykes.com at the Interviews blog. They are also archived on Blog Talk Radio, and they are archived as podcasts at the iTunes Store, all of which is free to you. And if you do go to uh, Blog Talk or to uh, I, uh, the iTunes Store, be sure to rate and review the show because it does. It, it helps increase the popularity, and it makes it more available to others who may not know about it yet. So that's pretty much everything I want to say about that. What I do want to tell you is, is that there is some news about the Wisconsin State Film Incentives on my blog, both in Rex's Rants and in the Save Incentives blog. I encourage you to go and check that out. Um, if I haven't said it already, the chat room is open, and I welcome people who are uh, appearing in the chat room at this moment. And uh, let's see. Uh, some of our upcoming guests will be Jeffrey Goodman, the director uh, will be returning for part two of his conversation about making movies. And we did a fabulous interview on film financing and how he funded his first feature, his first feature, and how he raised $2 million in about eight or nine months' time doing so. So you're going to want to tune in for Jeffrey when he returns. Joe Wilson, who's the uh, architect behind the Vampire Mob web series, will be coming up right after him. Kevin Sorbo, uh, a friend and fan, uh, a friend and, and a guest of Movie Beat, will be returning sometime soon. Uh, in August, I believe the 17th of August, I think, is when he's going to be back. Uh, and just many other guests that we've got uh, coming up. And so do uh, stay tuned to Rex Sykes Movie Beat, and uh, be sure to read the blog and, and, uh, and keep current with us and spread the word. Again, uh, you can join the uh, 
Rex Sykes Movie Beat friends page at Facebook, and you can uh, retweet us or tweet about us. Uh, the official address is Rex Sykes Movie BT. That's Rex Sykes Movie BT. All right, without any further ado, let me get to Matthew Tompkins, actor, producer, director. He's got a 20-year career. It includes starring or co-starring in over 80 television productions, 25 feature films, 60 national commercials, and 75 theater plays. Among his extensive acting credits, he's starred in movies... Uh, the movies Killing Down, The Fragility of Seconds, and Radiant, as well as co-starring in Living and Dying, Dying I'm sorry, Living and Dying with Michael Madsen, Missionary Man with Dolph Lundgren, Fire Down Below with Kevin Sorbo, a reoccurring role on Fox's Prison Break, and most recently in Robert Rodriguez's new movie Machete, along with Robert, alongside Robert De Niro. He has for seven times won the Dallas Theater Critics Forum Award for Best Actor. And he's produced two movies, which we're going to talk to him about right now. So let me bring Matthew on, and you can hear from the man himself. Hi, Matthew. How are you doing today? Hey, Rex. Good morning. Good morning. It's uh, great to have you on the show, and uh, I'm excited to get into our topic uh, with you. Um, you just returned from London, though. Let's let's talk a little bit about that. <laughs> You're a busy guy. Yeah, I did. I, I just came uh, from the other side of the pond. I was there a couple of weeks working uh with a crazy, energetic, sort of Monty Python-esque uh, advertising agency uh, branding company there called Twist and Shout, a great group of people uh, led by a, just a brilliant dude named Jim Shields. And they uh, they were creating uh, basically a, a series of in-house industrials for Sony Corporation, a lot of new security protocol and, and uh, anti-piracy stuff. And in the middle of all that, they, they uh, since Sony puts out a lot of the superhero movies, they wanted a, an American actor to play a superhero they had created called Uberman, who basically is, uh, the, the gag is Uberman has sort of been hired by this very conservative uh, British firm uh, to work basically as a worker bee, trying to punch a clock and be a regular guy. Uh, but, of course, he's in a superhero costume and trying to sit in a cubicle and blend in. But, of course, every time he high-fives somebody, they fly through the wall or, he forgets and gets excited and wants to go down to the kitchen to get a thing of coffee, and he just flies straight through the floor, or he melts things with his heat vision. I mean, it's just a constant problem for his supervisor. And, and of course, hijinks ensues. And I think uh, the greatest thing about it for me was, you know, improvisation was sort of the the name of the game. And, and they, uh, this British company, uh, particularly all of the British actors, were so incredibly game that I'd say probably, you know, we already had, we had, you know, nailed down scripts for, there were five scripts for each episode, but, but 90% of it ended up being basically improvised. And it was just, it was just hilarious. It was exhausting, but hilarious. But like I was telling you earlier, I didn't really have time to drink as much beer as I wanted because I had to squeeze into this superhero suit every day. So uh, I had to lay off the booze until after we were done. And then, of course, we tore up London, which was great. Well, that's fantastic. Now, you uh, you have recently you you know you produced these two movies, so we're going to talk to you about it. Yeah. Second. I also mentioned the fact that you know you've starred or co-starred in eighty different uh, TV or you know shows or movies. Uh, so that's true, and I've even been in a couple of flicks with your boy Kevin Sorbo there. Isn't that amazing? That's very yeah, cool. Yeah, he's a great he's a great great guy. He there's an actor named uh, Glenn Morshower. I don't uh -huh. know if you if you know Glenn. Um, plays Aaron Pierce on 24 and, and just been in a uh -huh. ton of stuff. Just a veteran Hollywood character actor, great guy. And he and I and Kevin did a, a movie for the Sci-Fi Channel in uh, in Indiana, actually, uh, called Yeah Fire from Below. And uh -huh. and there was really nothing to do in French Lick where we were shooting in the Marengo Cave system except 
they put us up in this big uh, hotel casino. So Glenn basically for a couple of days caught, taught Kevin and I how to play uh, how to play craps. Wow. Glenn's like a world class craps player, and uh, oh. we had a we had a great time. It was uh, Kevin was an absolute hoot. We did a a children's film together called Tommy and the Cool Mule, which if you haven't checked out, you should. Uh, Kevin's hilarious in it. Now I believe that's produced by isn't that produced by my buddy Andrew Stevens. That's the guy. Yeah, I've done I've done I think five or six films with Andrew now. He's uh, he's a little ball of energy. He is the Energizer Bunny. Andrew and I go back to 1976. Yeah, we co-starred in a movie back then at that time and uh, oh yeah, real high. So yeah, he's a hoot. He really is. He's a good guy. So yeah, well that's awesome. I'll see Kevin in just about three weeks again. Uh, his Tell movie. Him today. Uh, whatever I will, uh, but. Uh, uh, what if premieres uh, very soon, and uh, uh, I'm going to take my kids and, and go down and see them at, at the uh, premiere here in the Midwest. So uh, oh, okay. that's fantastic. I mean, that's that's awesome. Al, how do you juggle? How do you balance all of these things between acting and producing and writing and directing? How, how do you manage that? Because I know a lot of people, you know, uh, are interested in in pursuing a career and getting lucky in one area. <laughs> Man, I have no idea. Uh, I guess ultimately just sheer force of will. I mean, you, you always feel like you're you got your head down, just walking against the wind most of the time. But uh, but but I think like with anybody out there who you know who does the same thing, you, your creative impulse is so overwhelming that you know if you feel any grass growing underneath your feet, you you feel compelled to do something. If it's you know for me, if that means you know taking a stage play, or if that means sitting down and banging out a screenplay, or you know, gathering a bunch of the most talented folks I know around me and trying to, you know, think out a, uh, you know, a series of movie ideas we can shoot as a trilogy or whatever it may be. It, the idea is to constantly be creating, and that, that fortunately has, you know, led me down a bunch of different rabbit holes, uh, acting, directing, producing, etc., where I get to wear a lot of hats. And, and, and for me, for most actors out there who do it for any length of time just as a hired gun, ultimately I think you start to feel a need for more creative control over the content you're participating in. And that was the primary impetus for me creating Wolf Clan Productions, my film company. was I, I, I had a lot of stories I wanted to tell, and I didn't want to tell them anybody else's way. You know, I wanted to be able to, to gather, you know, a, a really amazing group of, of actors and crew and post-production folks, you know, people that I'd worked with over the years just as an actor, you know, and had sort of developed relationships with and just kind of waited until the time was right and I had enough resources and enough experience where I could I could make official invitations to people to participate in projects I would raise the money for and see them all the way through post-production into a, you know, into the marketplace and be able to have my fingerprints all over them. So you know, if they succeeded, everybody could could be a part of that success. And if they went down like a Japanese zero, I got nobody to blame but myself. You know what I mean? Well, it's, a, it's a big man to admit all that, too. Yeah, well, there it is. You know, I, I was the guy, uh, Rex, and I'm sure a lot of filmmakers out there were the same way. When I was a kid, you know, I mean, I was the, the kid with the Super 8 camera dragging all the neighborhood kids into my little films and, you know, gathering the whole neighborhood in the backyard on Saturday nights and broadcasting these films onto a big sheet my dad would stretch between trees. And, and you know, I mean, my, my dad was, I, I have to sort of give my, both my mom and my dad are highly, you know, creative, funny, you know, Scotch-Irish, Welsh, very loud, animated people. And But my dad in particular, you know, could have been, I think, a great actor. He looks a bit like, do you remember the old actor uh, John Saxon? Yeah, sure, sure. He looks a bit like a cross between John Saxon and Jonathan Winters. 
and and he does all the faces and all the voices and you know he uh funny little sort of side story for you you know he uh when he he he's a, he ended up being an attorney and being a very responsible you know a corporate man and in fact my family is full of corporate men i'm like the only guy at the thanksgiving table that raises my hand and say and i'm an actor and a writer you know i mean it's it's pretty interesting but my dad you know when he came when he graduated law school actually and this is back in the in the uh the late 50s early 60s he actually got a full ride scholarship based on his his work in the theater and his undergraduate work in college he got a full ride scholarship to the Pasadena Playhouse which back in those days was a very big deal and and he went to his father a man who uh, a career military man a man who was a the spitting image of Dwight D Eisenhower just a doppelganger for 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 Dwight D Eisenhower and I only ever knew him as the colonel um, that's what we all called him the colonel he went to the colonel and said hey I think I'm going to go to the Pasadena Playhouse and be an actor and 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 the uh, the colonel was not very enthusiastic about that so flash forward my dad is in the army and in law school and he's at Fort Sill Oklahoma and had sort of put that dream to rest and then started seeing flyers all around Fort Sill basically saying actors, writers, entertainers, you know, uh, call this number if you want to participate in some on-base uh, plays we're going to put on, trying to gather creative people, et cetera, you know, return this number. So Dad called the number, and a little Jewish private came into, you know, the the bunkhouse and sat down and started talking to him and, and said, hey, listen, after we're done here and I get out of the Army, I'm going to Los Angeles, I'm going to be a film director you know, you should come with me. You know, you obviously have a passion for this stuff, so why don't you come with me? And, of course, my dad gave him the story about the colonel. said, oh, there's no way I could get away with that. Uh, you know, I've got to go to law school. You know, I've got a couple of kids. I've got to be serious. And the guy said, well, okay. And they had some fun and put on some plays, but that, that Jewish private went on later to become Sidney Pollack. Oh, wow. And, uh, and so, you know, when, my, when I graduated uh, uh, high school and went off to college, and really sort of, you know, declared that I was going to spend the rest of my life acting and writing and creating, you know, my dad didn't even blink. He, uh, my folks, both of them were incredibly supportive. And, and uh, I, you know, I went to New York City like a shot right out of college and lived in Hell's Kitchen with another actor and a musician and started writing plays for an off-Broadway theater house called Cooper Square Theater and, and started acting and, and uh, just, you know, writing poetry. And, I mean, we literally felt like we were in a Kerouac novel, in the you know in the early 90s just running and gunning you don't have a pot to piss in you're just creating every day you know and uh, and then i got the call in the early 90s uh, from my new york agent who was like hey listen i got this uh call about uh this uh, children's show they're doing down in texas called uh, i think it's called wishbone or something like that about little jack russell terrier you know he goes back into classic literature you know and i'm like oh wishbone okay and my folks live in Oklahoma City. It was Texas. I was all the way on the other side of the country. I'm an only child. I thought, well, this will be an opportunity for me to, to do what I want to do in New York, which is play a bunch of Titanic leads on stage in a top-ten city, and I'm not getting those opportunities in New York because, well, it's going to take another ten years to do that. So moved to Texas, started working in Wishbone, and got picked up by Walker, Texas Ranger, playing all kinds of different roles, and and ended up, you know, uh, hooking up with a great uh, a theater company in Dallas called Classic Theater Company, which was actually a transplanted company from New York City. Ironically, they they had been the American Shakespeare Repertory Company, and then they moved to to Dallas, and they were led by this uh, this incredibly brilliant uh, sort of 
dark uh, genius named Janet Farrow, this woman who was kind of a corporate tycoon by day and this theater, this mad theater genius at night. And I hooked up with them and got to play a bunch of Titanic classical leads on stage. And and I was just getting fed from every angle and uh, and decided to make my home here. And as luck would have it, the work was has been steady for nearly 20 years. So I've been able to to do virtually this and, and nothing else. And and then about a half decade ago, uh, decided to, uh, well, actually about a decade ago, decided to to officially form a company and start producing films. And and that really is, I guess, uh, uh, I mean, we can segue, if you like to, into the first film I, I produced called Radiant. Well, let's do that then. Okay. I'm, I'm fascinated to learn more. Well, Radiant really began uh, from a really interesting place. Uh, I, uh, the writer-director of Radiant is just a super talented, um, really sort of a, I, I like to think of him as a total undiscovered sort of young Stanley Kubrick. He, his name is Steve Mahone, and he, had, he was one of Dallas's most dynamic theater directors for years and had directed me in a lot of shows um, over the years, and I always said to him, you know, on the side, because the critics of those of those plays, while they would always give great reviews, what what a, a large portion of the reviews would consist of would be commentary on how cinematic, you know, these productions were. You know, they were they were lit in a very cinematic way. The performances were extremely extremely restrained and very filmic, and it was just a very distinct style that he had, which was deeply rooted for Steve in his, you know, lifelong belief in naturalism and minimalism. So I would always tell him on the side, look, if there is any way we can, you know, capture what you do on stage on film, I think we're really going to have something, you know, and he would just sort of laugh and, you know, look at me like, you know, how in the heck are we going to do that? And so I just said, well, write something, write something you believe in and, and I'll put the money together for it and we'll go shoot it, whatever it is. And, about a year later, he tapped me on the shoulder and handed me a script called Radiant, which was this uh, really, really dark, intriguing little uh, speculative science fiction piece uh, about four people who basically volunteer to be infected with the designer virus. Uh, in short, sort of uh, to give you a, a flyby of the, of the narrative, you know, uh, the main character, Dr. Blackpool, is this rogue geneticist working sort of outside of the pale of, you know, the established pharmaceutical companies and government agencies, you know, funded by sort of shadowy patrons. He's working in the desert in secret to develop a designer virus that he believes, once introduced into the human host, would burn out all known diseases. So, Rex, if you can imagine, you know, a virus with the staying power of HIV, but with none of the pathological side effects. Um, that's basically what the radiant virus is. And, of course... He accomplishes this this task, and he he names the virus Radiant, and the word gets out in the medical community. And as a side note, you know, uh, he did a lot of research into the fringes of the medical community, and by that I mean he realized through the research in writing this piece that there are hundreds of thousands of people in the world that the medical establishment has basically either said, we don't know what you have and we can't help you, uh, or basically you're on your own. And those are the people that, you know, literally sort of go back in time. They go deep into holistic medicine and spiritualism. They go to the Indian reservations and the sweat lodges and deep into the Amazon. And, you know, they're looking for, you know, alternate ways to heal themselves, you know, a, a different answer than the modern medical establishment is prepared to provide. 
and the word gets out in the narrative of the film to all of those people. And so thousands and thousands of people start to make pilgrim, uh, this big pilgrimage out to the desert because Blackpool announces, I will conduct 10,000 videotaped interviews. And out of those interviews, I will select four pilgrims, that's what he calls them, pilgrims, to be my test subject. And, uh, and they will spread the word, you know, and we'll basically cure the world. Well, of course, pharmaceutical companies don't want anybody curing disease because that's, you know, there are billions and billions of dollars at stake. So in the narrative of the film, true, true. I mean, I mean, this is what you're speaking is you're, you're speaking truisms. I mean, you, yeah, absolutely. Accurate. I mean, this is this isn't this isn't the fiction part. This is this is actually very accurate. Yeah, it's, and that's that's why. And Steve sort of came up with this phrase, but that's why he calls it speculative science fiction. You know, uh-huh. it's possible. It, it, it's a scenario that you can absolutely see. It's possible that this unfolds. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. And. And so in the narrative, uh, you know, those, agent, the, those pharmaceutical companies, you know, with government, with all of their government connections, dispatch a squadron of black Apache attack helicopters that go swooping into the desert, and all of the guys in hazmat suits or their AK-47s fast rope down onto the ground and basically kill everybody and burn the whole thing to the ground and zip them up in body bags and burn them in a big inferno. Well, before that happens, Blackpool gives the virus to the the four pilgrims led by my character uh, a character named Ray who in the narrative of the film is a a Gulf War veteran suffering from neuropraxia and polyneuropathy uh, degenerative neuromuscular uh, diseases central nervous system diseases all of them you know it's it's just a debilitating wasting disease that will simply will not get any better and and Ray is convinced basically that it is a result of the cocktail he was given by the the armed forces before he was sent, you know, into the uh-huh. Gulf War, you know, to protect him, and uh, and nobody told him, nobody warned him, you know, this is all part of the speculative aspect of it. And then there are three other characters, you know, there's Trish, the character, who uh, basically she has, you know, they all have dysfunctions and diseases and defects of their own that simply will not go away. Um, you know, Trish is a, a character that's traveled throughout the third world working for charity organizations and hospice organizations and she's picked up some sort of infectious disease that no one will tell her what it is no one will tell her you know all she knows is she has a recurring you know bout of fevers that ravage her almost to the point of death and then she's okay for another couple of weeks and then the fever comes back but you know she's she's never been able to be treated for it so she's in their troop so you've got ray and trish uh, and you've got michael and michael played by an actor a great actor named jeremy schwartz simply doesn't sleep uh, hasn't been able to sleep virtually his entire life, and uh, and then he's got all kinds of different aches and pains that accompany all of that, and hallucinations, etc. Um, and anyway, uh, and the, the the very last the very last uh, character who's is, is this young gal who was a twin, and her twin has already died, uh, and she's afraid she's been infected with the same thing. Although you know her doctors won't tell her what it is, they basically have given her a death sentence. But uh, her character's name is Molly, Molly Wick, and Molly is you know she's She's in this troupe because she wants Dr. Blackpool to tell her what she has. And in all of the videotaped interviews, he selects these four. And basically, when he knows the attack helicopters are on their way and the place is about to be burned to the ground, he gives them a case with the virus, the coordinates to an unmarked, you know, uh, to a van sitting way out in the countryside, and the address of his right-hand guy, this totally introverted, monosyllabic, you know, barely socially you know, a functioning uh, lab assistant named Edward Moss, who basically lives literally 24-7, night and day, in a hazmat suit. 
and Ed is the one that runs all of the experiments on the animals, in particular the dogs. Um, and they, he, he said, take Ed with you. Ed, basically, when you, you know, drive deep into the desert, you know, outrun your pursuers. You know, when the van runs out of gas, you'll be on foot. But by that time, the virus, you know, you will have made the decision to ingest the virus, and it will have burned your diseases out, and you will have become radiant, you know, more than human. And Ed will be there to basically, you know, record all of this per, for posterity and to, you know, to take the journal of what happened the record of what happened into the world so the people know, you know, what happened. And they do that. They basically take Ed and they get into the van with the, the government agents in hot pursuit. And before they can actually take off the morning uh, that they do, the, the agents surround the farm where they're hiding. There's a, there's a gunfight. Uh, a bullet pierces the case uh, that Molly is holding, goes through the case and through her, killing her but spreading the virus immediately into the van. So now, whether or not they'd all decided to do it or not, they're infected, and wow. Ed is right there with them, and and they, you uh, know, I, I want. To, go ahead. I'm just gonna say, don't don't give the end of the movie away. I won't. I won't. You 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 took the words right out of my mouth. I won't tell you what happens next. Suffice to say, then the chase is on deep into the desert, and it really the film becomes this beautiful meditation, basically on not only the process of dying but the process of living, uh, in a different way, and uh, it's. You know, Steve is, you know, his sensibilities are, his, his cinematic heroes are Tarkovsky and Terrence Malick and Stanley Kubrick. And so there are long, long stretches of, of you know, the, the cinematography is spectacular, but long stretches of quiet in this movie uh, where he allows the, you know, the audience to watch the actors think and to be. And for us, I'll go back to the genesis of the making of the film. When he handed me this script, I went crazy for it, as you can tell and set about raising money for it. And uh, we didn't raise much. We raised, you know, just over about 100000 and uh and we gathered a troupe of incredible actors, most of them straight off the stage, people I'd worked with, you know, in his particular troupe that he'd been directing for for years. And we loaded into a van and had a skeleton crew. I think we had a guy on a boom. Uh, we had a DP that none of us had met before, but ended up being just an incredible godsend, a gentleman named Alan Ray, uh, we only had enough money for a PD-150, if you can remember that far back. Wow. Yeah. Uh, a little video camera called a PD-150. And, you know, I mean, coolers full of food and an old beat-up Winnebago and that and the van. And we basically took off for the desert of New Mexico, and we were out there for about eight weeks. Oh, yeah. uh, we That's shot in West Texas in a place called Red Mud. We shot all over Waco. We shot in Farmington, Arizona. Or, I'm sorry, Farmington, New Mexico, uh, the Bistai Badlands, the Denazin Wilderness. We got up into Craig, Colorado a little bit. Um, and we were just, I mean, staying in hotels, sleeping four hours a night, shooting 16 hours a day. I mean, and Steve's, goal, you know, hard and fast rule is, you know, none of the women get to wear makeup. You know, your clothes are going to get dirty. Your bodies are going to get scuffed. You're going to get sunburned. Your hair is going to bleach out. You're going to lose weight. You know, we're going to be running and gunning, guerrilla style, you know, for the next eight weeks. And I want the camera to capture all of it. And, and when we went out there, we really only had about 35 to 40 pages of finished script. And the rest of it he wanted, because all of the actors had a shorthand with each other, he basically asked all of us to build backstories well before the cameras rolled, which we did. And, you know, the idea in the classic sort of cinema verite, neorealism tradition was to basically take our camera into an already existing indigenous location. In these cases, the great outdoors and the great, you know, desert wildernesses out there and let the story basically tell itself through us and just kind of stay out of the way. 
um, you know, like, like I told you, uh, you know, Michelangelo, the great painter sculptor, you know, had a, had a, had a phrase that he, he didn't actually sculpt the form into the rock. He allowed the form to come out of the rock. And, and that's sort of what we wanted to do. We wanted to, we wanted to see what it wanted to be and then let it become that. And, and that's literally what we did seven days a week for, like I said, almost eight weeks. And we came back after this. Ex- I actually drove straight when we, when I wrapped on that film, deep in the desert in Farmington, I drove straight through up Colorado up to a place called Estes Park, Colorado, to vacation with my mom and dad at our cabin for a week. And when I showed up on their doorstep, they both jumped back about 10 feet because uh, I think they thought I was just, you know, some homeless dude that had wandered out of the mountains. Um, I had this huge beard, and I was completely – I'd lost about 20 pounds. And, and I, I mean, you know, I just looked like I'd been dragged down about three miles of the road on my face. And uh, yeah, But I told them, you know, we, we just I, – I can't even begin to tell you all the incredible things we encountered out there. Um, but the, the long and the short of it is we came back with about 80 one-hour DV tapes. Oh. completely full, and set about the next year editing all of that together uh, and and then sent it away, basically, the very first place we sent it, Aiming High, and all the filmmakers out there will, will I'm sure, relate to this. You're thinking, oh, what the heck, and we sent it to Sundance. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, you know, we a gentleman who at that time was the director of programming for Sundance, a guy named Trevor Groff, and Trevor Groff called back, talked to the director, Steve, and said, listen, um, we're full up this year at Sundance, but I love this movie, and Dennis Hopper and I, you know, run the Cinevegas Film Festival in Las Vegas. This is in 2005, uh-huh. and, and we, uh, we absolutely love this movie. You guys are coming to Vegas. So they flew us to Vegas, put us up in the Palms for, you know, five days and five nights. They actually premiered us on the same night as uh, a little movie called Hustle and Flow, uh-huh. and uh, we shared the red carpet with all those people, and, and unbeknownst to us, there was a reviewer in the audience from Variety Magazine, a gentleman named Robert Kohler, uh, who's one of the big critics for Variety. And, and when the, the review in Variety came out, um, it just absolutely blew us away. Because, to be honest, you know, given how the film was shot, with virtually no budget, budget with a skeleton crew, with shaky sound on a PD-150, we had to do such muscular work with the sound, with the sound work you know, in post, and our colorist did an abs- you know, with just a Herculean effort from our colorist to create this incredible palette of colors that, you know, uh, that, that make the film just absolutely beautiful, um, given the medium it was shot on, and an absolute documentary-style realism wrapped within this incredibly cinematic, sort of breathtaking uh, shooting style. And Robert Kohler gave us basically a four-star review and an absolute rave and sort of intimated that he thought this would sort of change the game, you know, on low-budget independent filmmaking moving into the future. And... Based on that review, we basically traveled the, the World Film Festival circuit, got raves all over the world, um, in, you know, at the Edinburgh International Film Festival, at Sci-Fi London, etc., just everywhere. And, and, uh, and now, as of the 13th of this month, Radiant came out globally on DVD at all the major retailers, uh, Amazon, Netflix, Blockbuster, Best Buy, etc., uh, through R2 Films and Big Bite Entertainment. So, you know, from, from the humble beginnings of that film to where it is now, we, we couldn't be any happier. Well, that is fantastic. i got more questions to ask you about Radiant and about your other movie and other things as well. Uh, I'm going to have to take a short break, but that really is, is a, a fabulous track that, that uh, you've got to be a part of. I mean, that, that is 
absolutely awesome. So let yeah, me come back once in a lifetime. Yeah, let me come back in just a few seconds, and we'll continue this discussion. I'm enjoying so much. Uh, you're listening to Rex Sykes Movie Beat. The official web address is R-E-X-S-I-K-E-S dot com. And keep in mind, we always appreciate your comments and your support about blogs and articles and these conversations. Now, please feel free to email me through the web you know, and ask questions of my guests in advance. You just look at, at the interview blog and see who's coming up. Uh, or or you meet us in the chat room and you ask questions, we'll try and get those answered on the air. Uh, and as well, uh, I appreciate so much the support and so much when you retweet about the interviews, when you post it on your Facebook walls, your MySpace walls, that uh, share it to your friends. Uh, when you post it on my wall, that's fabulous, but uh, those are my friends at sea. <laughs> so you know, we spread it far and wide and, and by your favorite means, and I sure do appreciate it, and my guests do too, because whenever you pro- promote my guests, you're, you're helping them reach more people, and, uh, and that's what we want to accomplish. So thank you so much. Uh, my guests, keep in mind, coming up are uh, Jeffrey Goodman's coming back, Joe Wilson of uh, Vampire Mob will be here, and Kevin Sarbo will be returning, will be returning along with a, a whole host of other guests. So I want to come right back now to uh, Matthew. Matthew, um, yeah. that is awesome. Now, in Cinema Verite, I mean, let's let's describe that process just a little bit more for the listener, because and you and you did excellent justice to it. But I mean, you you walk out there with this script, and it's kind of you have well, a lot of improv. I mean, in other words, you 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 rely on the actors to to further a story and and to let it unfold during that eight week process out in the middle of the desert, as opposed to knowing exactly what you're going to do next. Correct. Absolutely, and, and and honestly, I uh, I think the the next film, The Fragility of Seconds, or the Spanish title La Fragilidad de los Segundos, uh, is an even better example and the purest example of cinema verite neorealism because of of our absolute everyday contact with the indigenous population of the little border town called Okinaga, Mexico. Wow. Well, okay. Um, and and I'll, I'll tell you the genesis of that movie. That that like all great you know things i think began with a key collaboration and and for me that was a 20 year friendship uh one of my closest friends and collaborators uh, a a great actor named Julio Cesar Cedillo for all of you fans out there of of the Tommy Lee Jones directed film the three burials of Melquiades Estrada mm-hmm. um i don't know if you saw that film rex but a, a spectacular movie um Julio plays the title character, Melquiades Estrada, and uh, he's actually in Santa Fe at the moment shooting uh, Cowboys and Aliens uh, wow. with Harrison Ford and wow. and all the rest of them. But, but that aside, Julio and I have just been friends forever. Uh, we met when we were very, very young and watched each other come up in the industry and always intimated that we wanted to make a movie together, you know, but... But, you know, it's like you say to people all the time in the industry, hey, we should do something together, and it's just kind of what people say. But... We really meant it. We just never really found the right opportunity. But about four years ago, Julio uh, had called and said, hey, I want you to come. He'd always wanted me to come back to uh, Okinaga, Mexico, and Durango, Mexico, where he grew up, uh, to to have that experience and to meet his family and and to sort of embed ourselves there so he could give me a real honest taste of that culture. And we were always sort of planning a trip just, just socially there and when it looked like that trip was going to happen, simultaneously I had been paying a lot of attention to the women being murdered down in Juarez, Mexico. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now, basically, it's sort of spread throughout Mexico. But, but in particular, it, it's been concentrated in, 
in Juarez with the abduction and murder of, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. It's in the thousands now of young women. Um, And I've been following that as a human rights issue. I knew Jane Fonda and Glenn Close and Sally Field had marched on Juarez in protest of it. I knew, you know, the rest of the world was kind of baffled as to why there wasn't anything being done about it. Uh, I had an an uncle who was ex-FBI that had worked a little bit on it and told me how hopeless and corrupt the situation was down there. And so just as a news item, I'd been following it. And and literally, it was one of those experiences where you sit bolt upright in bed one night and you think, well, this would be a spectacular idea to cross-pollinate a bunch of different opportunities, you know. Julio and I want to work together to create something. You know, we also want to go to Mexico. You know, I called Julio and said, what do you say when we go to Mexico, we make a movie? And let's make a movie about this. And I have no idea what that's going to look like, but here's the general idea. And, you know, he took it and ran with it. Okay, then let's build on that idea, and we can go in this direction. You know, and it just kind of grew in our minds. And uh, and it became then all about going to Mexico to make a film. And both of us being fans of cinema verite and neorealism, you know, we we really wanted to create an environment in which we could gather a bunch of really, really skilled, highly improvisational and, and brave actors around us, take a skeleton crew down there, shoot on a very simple format, which we did, an XL1, Canon XL1, and, and run and gun. And basically, like I was saying earlier, in the purest form of cinema verite, Yes, you have an idea of what the narrative is. You know where the plot points are, and you know ultimately what the story is going to be. But you don't particularly nail down the dialogue. You don't even come up with a shot list or nail down your sets. You just decide kind of what you're going to get in front of the frame that day. We, we arrived in this border town, crossed the border into Mexico. His, uh, literally, we packed up you know, all of our actors you know, into a, and, and initially on the first trip, we went... We went down to Mexico twice, uh, Rex. The first time, there was only three of us. Julio, myself, and another, another actor named Chuck Huber. Just three guys. And we were going to act in it, shoot it, run the sound, do everything ourselves. Just literally a three-person filmmaking little ball of energy. And we jammed ourselves into a van and you know, all the clothes and equipment we could find or purchase or rent or buy or steal and drove down to Mexico 14 hours under the cover of night, arrived early the next morning. His cousin, you know, worked at the border, waved us on through, and we stayed, you know, in a hotel called Hotel Valentino's in Okinaga, Mexico, and uh, we immediately were sort of taken under, taken in by his family uh, and, uh, and spectacular people, uh, his aunt and uncle, uh, Francisco Rojero, and his, and his, uh, and his wonderful wife, uh, Julio's aunt, Lucmi, and then his sister, uh, who is also named Lucmi, and her husband, and they all basically took us in, and we sort of, you know, none of them speak English, uh, or if they do, they speak it barely, and Julio was basically the translator for Chuck and I, and literally for two and a half weeks, um, we we were the only actual actors in the film, and 90% of the people in the film were just indigenous people we stumbled across, indigenous locations we discovered, and, and in particular, his, his, his uncle, Francisco Rojero, and his aunt, and his cousin, uh, Lucmi, who played the lead role, Elena, total non-actors, absolute civilians. They became integral uh, performers in the film, and I think actually make the film uh, what it is. I mean, we, that is the, the purest definition of the cinema verite approach was to go back a little bit. Each day we would decide, okay, this is the bit of the narrative we want to capture today. So we would, you know, 
load all the stuff up on our shoulders, go walking into the city, and a location would present itself. We would basically insert ourselves into that indigenous location and and you know and let the cameras roll and begin to improvise dialogue that would propel the narrative of the story and and what you get there when you do that and you're able to do that seamlessly without disturbing the environment at all you know without imposing your will on it or building a set in the middle of it or locking the streets down or any of that if you're able to do it gently delicately in a surreptitious way and be able to you know the people there know what's going on but but they don't they don't really have any real interest in it you know and they all of a sudden you get what we like to call radical authenticity it's your act you are so as an actor i'll speak for myself and i know the rest of them felt this way you are so heavily influenced by the reality going on and the impact of that reality and all the different dimensions that exists that there's really no way to fake it at that point because you know to do something inauthentic in the middle of of reality as it is actually unfolding in real time around you it actually it's like it's like hearing a record scratch you know it's a horse from a different opera it slows everything down and and it stops it you know so in order to let it breathe we're like all right we know this is the story we want to tell the story we want to tell is bigger than we are it's smarter than we are and it's deeper than we are so let's let's get out of its way and just create an environment basically where we can give it enough light enough heat enough water enough food and let it tell itself through us and every single day we were there that's what happened so much so that we realized we were there on the uh, you know as, as luck would have it in the narrative of the scripted we created it there are three three main characters um, the first character Martin Dominguez played by Julio Cedillo is you know uh, he was a born and raised in Mexico you know his parents were killed early on he ends up moving to the states becoming very 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 successful shattering lots of stereotypes you know and he he becomes a very successful architect married to a very successful argentinian attorney and but his family in particular his sister is still back in mexico so when the film finds him he is returning to his hometown sort of as a prodigal son to bring his sister and her little boy back across into the united states and give them every advantage with all of his resources and of course when he gets there he discovers that his sister has no interest this shatters another stereotype you know his sister has no interest in coming to the states she thinks it's too loud too fast it's it's too much she wants her son to grow up in his own culture speak his own language eat his own food hear his own music and she turns him down well you know this is shattering to him but it the one in the the other the, the other main character my character Nicholas McGregor is a an FBI profiler um, who's got a very special gift to interpret a crime scene and his gift runs so deep and is so damaging to him when it actually operates inside him that he's basically losing his mind and so he is basically in forced sabbatical from the FBI uh, he's come down to Mexico to disappear basically drink himself into a stupor and not get involved with anything ever again it's just too painful and our third main character Ray is a lifelong criminal from Scotland who uh, starts the starts the the actual film in a in a Mexican jail, surrounded by a bunch of hardened Mexican criminals who don't speak any English, and he's basically re entertaining them by reciting Shakespeare to them. It's uh, it's really really a great way to open the film. And anyway, they all arrive, they all triangulate on this little border town on the same day. Uh, they all arrive on the same day. You know, Ray get, Ray is released from prison on the day that Nicholas arrives, on the day that Martine arrives, and they all arrive on the eve of the annual celebration they have in Okinaga every year in honor of Pancho Villa, Okinaga's favorite son, 
where the next day there's a huge parade down Main Street with tens of thousands of, you know, caballeros and vaqueros dressed as Pancho Villa with their gun belts, firing their guns in the air, riding their horses. The street is just flooded. And we actually arrived, actually, as, as was the narrative, on the eve of this celebration. And so our, what that becomes in the cinema verite style is, okay, so the next morning, let's take advantage of this. Martin is going to get up. He's going he's to take Elena to the parade, and he's going to ask her then if she wants to come over and tell her why he's come back. And that's when she'll drop it on him that she doesn't want to go back to the United States. Well, all of a sudden, we're wading into 10,000 people with our camera. Well, you can imagine the production value. And it's, it was just – and miraculously, we were out there all day – the mayor of the town had put out the word that there were American filmmakers in town, you know, making a film. We sort of told them what the subject matter was. Everyone there was so supportive, the entire town, so respectful. Nobody looked at the camera. Nobody got in our way. Nobody, you know, jumped in front of it making funny faces. Nobody heckled us. I mean, it was this incredible artistic respect for what we were getting. And and we were astonished at at what what was we were seeing in front of the lens you know and that would unfold every day we would walk into some location that would be full of these amazing faces and amazing people and amazing architecture and topography something you couldn't pay a set designer to do in a million years and actors you know faces you couldn't pay enough money to get from central casting and these people were participating in the film and acting in the film and it just infused everything with this radical radical authenticity and that's where the phrase see what it wants to be really sort of uh, was born you know every day we would look at each other and we'd be like all right let's see what it wants to be and once we see it you know let's get out of its way and let it be that thing and when we've got it we'll know it because we would do take after take and we just it wasn't quite we could see what it wanted to be but it wasn't quite there yet and then bang all of a sudden you have it and you know to go back to julio's uncle francisco rojero this is such an amazing gentleman that you know, he had been a, a very famous boxer in Mexico in his youth, and you know now was working in, in you know as in a in a repair shop in Okinaga, just a hardworking blue collar guy with his family, and he has this amazing weather lined face and this incredible and he just wears his soul on his sleeve, and he was so good in the film as Julio's uncle that his nickname became La Profesional. You know, I mean, this guy could cry on cue. He remembered everybody else's lines. He you know, he was directing traffic. He was I mean, he was incredible, and all of them uh, gave spectacular performances. And our fourth main character is played by a really great Colombian actor uh, named Maurice Ripke, and he is, his character's name is El Maton. El Maton basically is the killer. And when we decided to make a movie about a young woman who disappears in a border town, like The Fragility of Seconds, La Fragilidad de los Segundos, you know, as the filmmakers, you know, Julio and I both were adamant that, look, we don't want to set ourselves up as an authority on who's murdering these women. We don't even really want to make a movie about catching the killer. What we want to do is examine the collateral damage that happens in these towns when these women disappear. What is the toll it takes on the communities around them? How helpless are these people? And uh, and that's really what we focused on. Although there is a killer uh, you know, you, you really only see his face in quadrants or from behind. You hear his voice in the abstract. You never really get a good, honest-to-goodness look at him until the very, very end, and I want to give it away. But the idea there, uh, and by the way, it was an astonishing, physicalized, visceral performance by Maurice Ripke in that role. And and what, what it ends up accomplishing is, and the reason we did that is I didn't want to, I don't want to try to, to thumbprint, this is what these killers look like, this is what they sound like, 
you know, I wanted him to be innocuous. I never really wanted you to be able to get a fix on him because these guys are nameless and faceless, and when they've done what they've done, whoever they are, they disappear back into the population like ghosts. You never know they were there. And, and that was, that's really, you know, that sense of omnipresent tension, you know, that sense of, as the, the variety critic Robert Col- uh, uh, Joe Layden, that was the other thing about that movie, um, Rex, is after we went down the second time, because when we came back the first time, just the three of us, uh-huh. you know, just as an exercise, you know, we realized this is way, way more than an exercise. We have lightning in a bottle here. Uh-huh. So we need to go back and finish this film, and this time for real. And we did that. This time we went back with a few more crew people and a few more actors. We stayed another two weeks, got it in the can, you know, spent about a year editing it with the very same editor we used on Radiant, a gentleman named Steve Baker, um, who I've known for years and years, just this incredibly meditative, intuitive director who was able to take this raw, raw footage and not only edit it together in an incredibly beautiful, artistic way, but colorize it to where you'd never know the medium we shot it on and we spent about a year editing it and uh and then all the and we we submitted it to festivals got invited to go to the world fest in houston uh they fell you know so in love with it that we were their opening night film uh and as luck would have it somehow a screener of that film got into the hands of joe Layden, uh another big critic with variety magazine and and joe actually was freelancing for the houston chronicle at the time and the next morning after we screened on the front page of the art section, the Houston Chronicle was a four-star rave for the fragility of seconds, um, you know, uh, using words like spectacular and dazzling and, you know, again, game changer. And, uh, and that, based on that review, we traveled the festival circuit and had some amazing success and some amazing reviews and some amazing adventures along with it. And, and, uh, and then ultimately now, as of yesterday, the 20th, we are in worldwide release on DVD through Vanguard Cinema. And, where can they get Fragility of Seconds? They can get the Fragility of Seconds, uh, and, it, and it goes by, the Fragility of Seconds is actually the, being marketed by its Spanish name, uh-huh. which is La Fragilidad de los Segundos. Right. Cool. cool. And, uh, yeah, they can get it at all the major retailers, online, Amazon, Netflix, Blockbuster, Best Buy, Walmart, etc. It's it's everywhere. Oh, fantastic! Um, so and that that came out as of yesterday. So we couldn't be any any happier about that. And in particular, Rex, I think, as the filmmakers, we're we're deeply happy at all of the sacrifice and hard work that the the humble folks in Okinawa, Mexico, poured into the film is being you know is being rewarded. And to be able to one of the one of the happiest moments of my life was here in Dallas at the USA Film Festival when we had a big premiere for the film community uh, here in town, and we rolled out Fragility. We actually were able to bring Julio's family in from Okinawa, Mexico, to that big premiere that night. And oh. if you can imagine, I mean, I mean, coming from where they're coming from to hey. sitting in a huge audience watching themselves, you know, on a 70-foot screen. Uh, they were they were just overwhelmed, and I've, I've, my heart filled up like, I mean, I can't even describe it that night. It, it was a very proud moment for us all, but now for the movie to be out, uh, we, we couldn't be any more grateful than we are. It's, it's, uh, it just, and, and all of that teaches me, and I'm sure it teaches anybody that has this experience, because I'm certainly not the first, what it teaches you is stick to your vision. You know, don't give up. Stick to your guns. You know, do what your intuition artistically is telling you to do. You know, as tried as it sounds, follow your artistic heart. You know, fortune favors the bold. Where there's a will, there's a way.
use. The point is, if you don't allow the universe to tell you no, um, and you just you set about telling your story by any means necessary, and if it's a good story and you do a good job and you pour your heart into it, and more importantly, I think you surround yourself uh, with people who know what they're doing and you're willing to take some risks, and you've also got to be willing to fail to do this because, uh, because you know, there's a chance you will, um, I think great things can happen. I, I really do. And these two films are certainly examples of that. Well, that is absolutely fantastic. I mean, that is two for two. That's, that, that is a great uh, success with both film. I mean, I, I, I'm very impressed with that. Uh, do you? We literally have maybe about five minutes left. Uh, okay. There's more, there's more I want to ask you about the process of making the film and about uh, working with the actors and, and create the whole cinema verite. So we're not going to have time, obviously, today. So you know, I, I I want you to come back and and we'll talk more about this and and about other things as well. I love to. We, that's fantastic. And so we will let the listeners know when you're going to be back, probably in the next few weeks or something, depending on your schedule. But uh, but uh, this is absolutely fascinating. Do you have a website, or is there a website that, that incorporates any of the information here? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, the website right now uh, is, my company website is www.wolfclanproductions.com. When you say Wolf Clan, it's W O L. Yes, W O L F C L A N. One word. W O L W O L F C L A N Productions plural dot com. And what's up there now is the Fragility of Seconds page. There's the theatrical trailer and uh, and then some of the reviews and some production stills. Um, on Facebook, there are you know fan pages for both Fragility and Radiant. Uh, where you can see the DVD artwork and the theatrical trailers. And then I have a sister company that is sort of set up to make bigger, more commercial fare called Desperado Films, and that's www.desperadofilms.com. Fantastic. Now, we again, we've, we've got maybe four minutes. Yeah. Uh, and in the remaining four minutes, uh, let's let's do this. Um, uh, w- what about upcoming projects? You've done two of these Cinema Verte uh, type movies. Are, are you mm-hmm. planning on doing more of those? Are you planning on well, uh, more near? Well, what's interesting is sandwiched in between those two films, uh, in between Radiant and Fragility, was actually a much more traditional filmmaking experience. I, I collaborated with a gentleman named Blake Calhoun and a group called Loud Pictures uh, to create an action thriller. A, you know, a much bigger budget, uh, a genre let, movie. Let me interrupt you, let me interrupt you just yeah. one second because there was a pop in the volume there. I've oh, okay. While we we're, while we're talking, let me just tell the listeners that if they notice sound issues, for whatever reason, uh, the blog talk format has some sound issues usually around the end of the show, but hang in there. Uh, you know, you may need some disturbance, but, but continue to hang in. All right. Well, so, I, was, sorry. I was just going to say we created a film called Killing Down, which is in worldwide release. Uh, which is a great action thriller. And to be honest, uh, projects in the future, I'm, I'm collaborating right now with one of your buddies, John Keyes. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, uh, yeah I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to co-produce with John uh, two, two feature films, uh, uh, about a half-million-dollar feature film called uh, The Harrowing, which is, uh-huh. a, uh, which is a very small budget but super interesting horror film, and then a much, much larger multi-million-dollar vampire western called The Bloodwalkers. Oh, um, very much in the tradition of Robert Rodriguez's From Dusk Till Dawn, uh, Catherine Bigelow's Near Dark, etc. Um, uh, straight from the, the fevered and twisted recesses of John Key's mind, both of these stories. <laughs> and and uh, he's, a, he's a great friend and a great collaborator. And we, we've, 
And on the Desperado side, uh, Rex, we've got literally a $30 million 10-picture slate at $3 million per picture that we are shopping to investors at the moment. Um, so yeah, we've we've got a we've got the ability to make movies basically stacked up from here through the next you know half decade. Um, so a lot a lot going on, absolutely. And speaking of your our mutual friend Andrew Stevens, uh, yeah. got two more films with Andrew coming out in the fall. Uh, a sci-fi movie for the Sci-Fi Channel called Mongolian Death Worm. What a great hilarious title! Isn't that a great title? A great title. Mongolia, and then and then actually uh, a faith-based film called Breaking the Press. Wow, wow. Um, that Andrew produced and directed. I played one of the leads for him, um, and that those come out in the in the fall. And then uh, just as a as an actor, I've got another film coming out this fall called Spilt Milk, which is from Indigenous Filmworks and Mobile Production Services here in Dallas. Uh, it's kind of a Coen Brothers style dark comedy. You know, in the 70s, when I was living in Los Angeles, there was this exodus to uh, Texas and to Dallas, along with the TV show Dallas. And That's right. Always encouraged me to move to Texas, and I spent a lot of my youth in Texas. My dad was from Missouri but grew up in Texas, and, All right. and I thought, I don't want to live in Texas. No way. <laughs> now I kind of regret it. You're there. <laughs> there. <laughs> hey, man, there are, you know, Texas finally passed its film incentives. So they're a little more aggressive now. Um, we're not quite on par with New Mexico or Louisiana, but we're close. And, you know, we've got five television series shooting here right now, network shows. Um, you know, and the, the film, obviously Austin is a filmmaking hub. Yeah. Uh, but Dallas is rapidly becoming an independent filmmaking hub as well. And there is a nucleus of us in, in Dallas. Uh, you, you know, you already know John. Uh, there's oh, yeah, a nucleus yeah. of us in Dallas that are beginning to turn out films with regularity. And... Of course, the goal, ultimately, is always not just to make a film that, hey, that's a pretty good film for Dallas, but just a, a film that's just a pretty, a pretty damn good film for, oh, yeah. for being from anywhere. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. That's the Matthew, idea. Matthew, this has been a, a fabulous hour. I certainly appreciate you uh, being my guest today. We're going to talk in just a few minutes, and we'll try and schedule uh, the next time so that in the, by the next interview, which I believe is Joe Wilson coming up, uh, we'll be able to tell listeners uh, just when you'll be back, or they can go to your biography page um, on rexsykes.com at the interviews blog and, and find out when we're going to have you back. Uh, but I certainly appreciate this. You've been fascinating and uh, very busy, and uh, we're going to want to have, you know, obviously we've got to have a lot more to talk about. So My pleasure, uh, Rex. Absolutely my pleasure. We'll be doing that in just a – we'll talk in just a few minutes, but I want to say thank you so much and, uh, and, and wish you well for the rest of the week. You got it. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Uh, again, thanks to my fascinating guest, Mr. Matthew Tompkins. And, uh, and you, the readers and listeners of Movie Beat, I, I appreciate you being here. Now, please, if you've enjoyed today's interview uh, or any of the interviews, please spread them, share them, email them, phone your friends, put them on Facebook, put them on Twitter, put them on MySpace. Use your favorite social means to, to spread this interview and the other uh, far and wide. I certainly appreciate that. Remember, you can become a member of the Rex Sykes Movie Beat Facebook group or the Friends page on Facebook. You can join if you're a Wisconsin resident. Join the uh, Wisconsin Film Job, Save Wisconsin, uh, Keep Wisconsin Film Friendly. That is on my profile uh, as well. Uh, and please do keep keep your letters and your emails and your phone calls coming. I always like to uh, get feedback uh, regarding the shows uh, and uh, suggestions, and I really do appreciate the, the fact out to me, and I hope you enjoy the way we're reaching out to you by bringing you uh, these professional filmmakers like Matthew and, and all the rest. So again, Joe Wilson is, uh, I believe, the next guest, and then Jeffrey Goodman will return, and, uh, and we'll let you know what's happening after that. 
All right, everybody, have a fabulous day. Uh, make your movies and complete your projects. And until we meet the next time, that's a wrap. <laughs>